Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, from the team that brought you the Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Ashley Steckler. And I'm Zach Glazer. And this is episode 440 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, I talked to Rebecca Sandifert about access to justice and how framing that question can help us regulate lawyers and law firms. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Posh Virtual Receptionist, and Clio. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. So stay tuned and we'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. So Zach, we actually had Rebecca on several years ago, mm-hmm. and we are inviting her back to talk again. Can you tell me a little bit about why we asked her to join us in 2019 already? Oh man, yeah, it was a while ago, and, and quite frankly, we probably should have had her on more, you know, recently or or more often because she is extremely well versed in the access to justice sphere. And I think that I'm, I'm actually kind of not saying that big enough. She, she is mm. extremely well-versed and extremely well-respected in the access to justice sphere. Initially in 2019, we had her on to talk about thinking about access to justice more broadly than just access to a lawyer or access to the legal system and mm-hmm. reframing that question to do people have access to resolution of a justiciable issue. And so that is not always how we think of access to justice when we when we argue about it, when we argue about more lawyers, more money, more court being easily accessible. Um, yeah. Yes, those things are access to justice, but are they broadly access to justice? Yeah. So we had the conversation with her to broaden how we look at that. Mm-hmm. And now we've invited her back on for this episode, which you talked to her about mm-hmm. access to justice. What is the new take this time? Why are we having her back this time? So access to justice, like really hasn't changed, obviously, like we're we're still mm-hmm. it's an uphill battle and it is a battle about how do we frame the question? But what has adjusted or changed or evolved since last time we talked to Rebecca is that some states have revisited how they do some of their you know regulations how they do some of the regulating of lawyers and law firms and things have changed things have changed and gone back experiments have happened experiments are are still ongoing and so I wanted to talk to Dr. Sanifer about her thoughts on how we can continue to move forward with regulations of attorneys. And I have my own ideas about the potential futility of regulating lawyers. And so it's nice to have somebody on that can talk about a systematic and thoughtful approach to adjusting and appropriately testing our regulatory systems. So let's hear Zach's conversation and learn a little bit more about that. 
I am Rebecca Sandifer. I'm a college professor. I work at the at Arizona State University, and I'm also a faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation, and I study access to justice. Rebecca, thank you for joining us on on this episode of the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I obviously we like talking about access to justice here, but it's good to get people that have literally studied it and devote what they're doing to the issues around access to justice. What I kind of wanted to start with, because, you know, on, on Twitter, we'll use the hashtag A to J and people will say access to justice. And, and that, that term gets bandied about a bit, but I want to kind of define what we're talking about. When you talk about access to justice, what are we thinking there? What, what is that? What does that mean in your mind? That is such a great question. Because the traditional way I think that we've thought about this is that access to justice is access to a court mm-hmm. or it's access to a lawyer. It's access to some chunk of the formal legal system in the theory that that's going to get you to some kind of substantive outcome that's just or at least right. lawful. I think about it somewhat differently. So when I am thinking about access to justice and working to try to find ways to increase it and equalize it, I'm thinking about access to just solutions, so to lawful resolutions to the many millions of problems that Americans have every year that are governed by the civil law. And sometimes the way you're going to get that just solution is through a lawyer or through a court case. But oftentimes, I mean, we don't we don't set up these laws because we want people to file lawsuits all the time. We set up these <laughs> laws because we want them to order behavior that we think is really important, like raising your kids or making a living or having a place to live. And so mm-hmm. what we really want is for the formal legal system to be the backstop of, of having a set of, of rules and standards and norms that allow people to, in an orderly and somewhat predictable way, resolve the inevitable conflicts that we come to in life. And so if it gets resolved lawfully, that for me is access to justice, whether the law in a formal sense is ever involved or not. Like I'm lawfully sitting in my chair right now. I am. <laughs> I think that's an important distinction because we as lawyers a lot of times especially when we're talking from my perspective I'm a somebody that talks about legal technology a lot but we talk about people having access to the courts or access to being able to do something having access to a lawyer and you know we we have a lot of numbers that that we throw around of how many people have a legal issue and don't have access to a lawyer or have a legal issue, have money, and still don't go get access to a lawyer. And so I think reframing it as access to kind of the lawful resolution, so that that would be even being able to, you get behind on your rent, and your landlord comes and says, okay, well, you know, we obviously have to evict you here. And you go through that eviction process without even going into the court room, that would be access to justice in your mind or or not? Well, so part of that lawfulness is, say you have a, a notice period. So mm-hmm. you, if you're my landlord, you have to give me a certain kind of heads up that this is something that you're going to do. I have to be able to make defenses to you. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's that's what, what that court context right. is for. And so, you know, part of the reason we have eviction laws is to prevent self-help, it's to prevent landlords from from executing evictions in ways that maybe we don't agree are the right right way to leave them. I would also say, though, in that situation, another lawful resolution of that problem would be for that tenant to, in some way, find the money to pay the landlord the back rent. 
mm-hmm. which typically, if you think about a case of eviction, is what the landlord wants. Right. right? The landlord, that's that's their business, and and they want to make a living. And so if you can resolve that problem on their side, you can make eviction not the issue that's on the table. Well, so do you think that people, as they're going about their their day and and the regular public, non-lawyers, people that don't really have a lot of access or interaction with the legal system, do you think they really even recognize that they have a kind of access to justice problem a lot of times? That's one of the things that's really striking. So if you talk to people in one of two ways, so if you're a sociologist, one way you can talk to people is just talk to them. So, you know, if you sit down and you say, tell me a story about something that's happening at work or something that's happening in your neighborhood or something happening at your kid's school, they'll tell a story about, you know, my employer is such a jerk. He owes me overtime, but he only pays it like one out of every five times that I'm owed. Mm-hmm. Not recognizing that whatever state you're in, there are wage and hour laws and there are federal laws that make that behavior on your landlord's part illegal and that make that, in fact, a justice issue. Another way that you can see this is uh, I did a survey a few years ago of ordinary people and I said, and I asked them the different kinds of issues they were experiencing. So, you know, were they in a dispute with their insurance company about covering some medical treatment or Mm -hmm. did they have wages they weren't being paid or were they behind on their rent or something like that? And so I said, okay, well, you told me you had this kind of situation in your life. What kind of situation is it? Is it a bureaucratic problem? Is it a personal problem? Is it a moral problem? Is it bad luck? Is it God's will for you? Is it a legal problem? And the most common way that people described their civil justice issues, so this was a list of things that lawyers had had identified as justiciable, as things you could take action on in the civil law. Mm -hmm. The most common way that people described that was as either bad luck or God's will for me. Right. So these are things that just happen in life or they're supposed to happen in life. And so if that's the way I'm thinking about them, I'm going to handle them in a very different way Right. than if I identify them as legal or as somebody else's moral failing or something like that. I'm actually, because we're not on video, nobody can see. Like, I'm, I'm kind of stunned by that, by that idea that most people, when they're, when they approach these problems, think of it as bad luck or God's will. But then, honestly, I was watching Golden Girls last night and there's an episode... <laughs> Yes. Yes. There's an episode where, where Rose loses her husband's pension because her husband's company goes bankrupt after, you know, he's passed and she has the pension. And her solution to that was go get another job in order to try to, you know, my solution to that is sue the hell out of everybody. (laughs) You know, I mean, like is to fight them directly. And her solution was, oh, well, this is bad luck. This is something that has happened to me and I can't do much about it other than react. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's interesting. And, and we as lawyers, I mean, that was not my solution. <laughs> that was not the direction that, that I went with that. So that, that's fascinating. So do you think there's an education problem in, in uh, access to justice? I mean, I think there is some, there's some value in helping people understand that this is their legal system. Mm-hmm. It's accountable to them. I think that's an educational task we should be working on. When I first started in this work, sort of my temptation was, well, we'll just tell everyone that these are all legal issues and these are the five ways that they can solve them. And you run into two problems. So one is, if you think about, I'll just talk about me. We won't implicate you. But if you talk about me, like I'm receptive to information when it feels relevant in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so if you gave me like this giant book of all the different legal issues I might run into and what I might do about them when I was 18 and taking my last class in high school, 
you know, I might find it was interesting, but I'm probably not going to remember when I'm 45. And the problem is I can't get my kid into the school that I think that he or she should be enrolled in, for example. Mm-hmm. Things that are targeted at the moment when people experience a problem and that are that are specific to their situation, people are much more able to take that information on. So that's one challenge. But another challenge is the rules we have about what you can say about the law. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, I, as someone who does not have a law degree and is not a licensed attorney, can tell you what the law says in the sense that I can say, the law says if you're a tenant, you have to pay rent. <laughs> right. And I can say, you know, your, law, your landlord has to give you a certain amount of notice. But what I can't say is if your landlord doesn't give you that notice, maybe you should go to court and file this crazy thing called an answer that says, actually, your landlord is violating the law. Because if I do that, I'm violating the law. I'm engaged in the unauthorized practice of law by giving super basic legal advice. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is, if I get this information miles away in my life from when I need it, I'm not going to remember that information, which is true for all of us about lots of things. But another part of it is really kind of unnecessary restrictions on what ordinary people can tell each other or what people who are not attorneys can tell people who are not attorneys about the law. And there are other jurisdictions that are not that restrictive. So, for mm-hmm. instance, in England and Wales and most of the UK, people who are not lawyers can give legal advice. And throughout the country, in, in England and Wales, there's a thing called citizen's advice that's funded by the government and philanthropy and it's trained volunteers. And you come in and you're like, I just got this really scary letter. I don't know what it means. And they say, first of all, okay, this is what this letter is. It's a demand letter for whatever. And these are your three options in responding to this. And if you take option one, this will probably happen. And if you take option two, this will probably happen, which in the U.S. only typically, not always, but only an attorney can give you that advice. Mm-hmm. And so, first of all, you got to figure out that you need that it's legal, whereas if it's just citizen's advice and the issue is I got the scary letter, what does it mean? Right. So it's a signposted place to go. But then those people are empowered to actually give you useful information instead of information that's less useful, which is most of what you can give out in the U.S. Like right. There are laws. Here they are in this book. <laughs> Have at it. Have at it. You know, there there was a thing in there where you you say, for the most part, lawyers are the only people that are able to to give out legal advice in the United States. So that that indicates that that's not 100% true, that only lawyers are the ones that are able to give out legal advice. And and I I think you're correct, but I'd I'd like to know kind of what what do you, uh, I mean, I know you're correct, but but what what are you, uh, what do you mean by that? Who else can give out legal advice then? That's a great question. So I don't know. Your listeners have probably heard rumors of regulatory reform projects in different states. Mm-hmm. And so there are examples like that. But there are examples that have been around for 60 or 70 years of this. So in a range of different kinds of federal practice, so different kinds of benefits, unemployment, Social Security, in immigration courts, and in some state tax courts, people who are not licensed attorneys but who are authorized to give advice in those contexts and sometimes to appear in those contexts like immigration court or state tax court can represent you in that limited area of practice. So that's been true for decades. What you see in really recent years, like say the last three, are some different attempts to open that space up in different states. So Many states have created licensed paralegal programs or are thinking about licensed paralegal programs. And so unlike a paralegal in a law firm who's formally under the supervision of an attorney, 
those are independent paralegals and they're usually licensed. They're always licensed to do limited practice. So they only do landlord tenant law or they only do parts of family law. And then when mm-hmm. and they sometimes have rights of appearance, but often don't. And they're part of their training is you can do this, but when you get to this point or this kind of issue, you've got to hand it off to an attorney. So that's one thing that's happening around the country. Then you have other contexts that are not using licensing of individuals as a way mm-hmm. to solve, as a way to sort of create new kinds of services, but they're authorizing organizations to provide them. So mm-hmm. in Alaska, the state Supreme Court gave a waiver to Alaska Legal Services, which is the federally funded civil legal aid shop in Alaska, to train and supervise people who are not attorneys throughout the state to give limited legal services around issues that people commonly confront, like attaching to benefits and so on. And the benefit of doing that is Alaska is huge. (laughs) And, you know, big squads of the population live where there are not only no lawyers, but no roads. Mm -hmm. And they're very difficult to get to. And so a really incredible resource for providing people assistance in those situations are the people who are already there. Right. So, so you can, you know, you, you then provide this model of training people to assist their neighbors and their community members alongside other kinds of assistance they might be giving, like health assistance. Right. So we have all kinds of dental therapists and parish nurses and public health nurses with different levels of, of certification and qualification. They can be trained, for example, to do a little bit of legal advice around issues that are common in the communities that they work in. So that's one model. Mm-hmm. Another model, Delaware, was looking at its landlord-tenant law, and it realized that there was a really big asymmetry there, which was that landlords, who are organizations, could hire registered agents who are not attorneys to represent them in eviction proceedings, but people who are not organizations could not hire those same mm-hmm. folks. They could either have a lawyer or they could represent themselves. Mm-hmm. So Delaware changed the law so that registered agents could could work for tenants as well as for landlords. Right. So this just straight equity issue there. Utah did something that California also considered, but has since stopped considering, which is to do an evidence based kind of regulation Mm -hmm. where you authorize an organization to come in and provide legal services through a new means. So it could be because there's non-lawyer investment, which violates rules in most states. It could be because there's people who aren't fully qualified attorneys providing direct legal services to the public. It could be because you've got a really good computer program that, say, is reading contracts and giving you advice about what's in them, which would be UPL by a robot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. so then, you you know, you watch, you measure how people experience those services in real time to see if there are consumer harms. And if there are, you can step in and say, wait a minute, you know, your, your algorithm's giving bad advice or your charging people something that's 10 times what everyone else is charging them for the same thing. So you have a regulator that's using, instead of having a bunch of upfront requirements, which is what we do with lawyers, mm-hmm. you have a, a regulator that's using evidence to watch things as they happen, focused on consumer protection, like directly measuring the thing that you have the regulation for, which is protecting people. Do we have that for lawyers, though? No. Even? <laughs> I, I, I think that's the thing that I run into a lot of times. I in practice, have practiced with some really bad lawyers. And we don't, at least anecdotally, it has not been my experience that lawyers get reprimanded for practicing bad law. They get reprimanded for lying to clients, lying to the court, or mishandling money. 
Yeah. And so why are we so concerned with getting the wrong answer? And I guess that's the thing is like, I feel like we're not really that concerned with getting the wrong answer. You know, <laughs> in the, it's a thing we say to continue to regulate. But I, I also kind of want to go a little broader on this idea of people that are not lawyers or entities that are not lawyers being able to give legal advice. You know, if you look at areas where there's no money to be made, many times we either turn a blind eye or actively allow an organization to give legal advice. Or if you look at some of the organizations that are giving accounting advice, as well as legal yeah. advice um, at yeah. the same time. And the organization is giving that advice by selling the hours of the lawyers that work for them. And it's not a firm. So mm -hmm. we, we already do this. And I, I always go to this. How are you going to regulate something that is online and outside of the United States? So we're not are we fighting a losing battle there in, in the first place, you know, and, and have, we, have we already lost this battle? If I'm looking at it from the perspective of the lawyers who want to, who rightly want to protect the public, who rightly want law to be practiced well, have we already lost that battle? I don't think so. But I think the way we regulate law in the U.S. has some peculiar qualities, right? So it's done at the level of states, which means there are and, and territories, so there are like 53 jurisdictions, 53 <laughs> regimes for, for authorizing people to practice. So you could be authorized to practice in New Mexico, but not in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it challenging to think about something that would be consistent across all those jurisdictions. I think that's one issue. Right. I think another issue, as you point out, or I infer from what you said, is the pace of change has been faster than the pace at which regulators have thought about consumer protection oh, yeah. in a particular context. So there are services you can get that are unregulated in the sense that this I'm sitting in Arizona right now. The state of Arizona has no jurisdiction over a lawyer from Greenland. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so if I get a service on the Internet. But I think what we do have the opportunity to do is to move away from things that make us feel comfortable because we've done them forever. So regulating legal services by putting all these upfront restrictions on who can enter the profession it makes it expensive. It makes it difficult to get into. It's part of the reason that, that the American legal profession stays less diverse than the people that it is accountable to as servants mm -hmm. of the court and the public. So I think thinking about ways to open up participation in connecting people to their own law, I think there are a lot of opportunities there. And one of the things that you see in the Utah example is if what we really care about is consumer protection then let's regulate for consumer protection, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Let's make that the, the, the explicit goal of the regulation. And if that's really what we want to achieve, let's see if we're actually achieving it. Right. Instead right. of assuming that if we do things the way we've always done them, then everything must be great. Mm -hmm. Let me take a break for a word from our sponsors real quick. And when we come back, I'd like to kind of go down that path of connecting people with their own law, that idea in this. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. The Lawyer's Podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call while you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case? Well, that's where Posh comes in. 
Posh is a team of professional U.S.-based live virtual receptionists who are available 24-7, 365. They answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. With Posh handling your calls, you can devote more time to billable hours and building your law firm. And the convenient Posh app puts you in total control of when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is always just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to Lawyerist listeners. Visit posh.com forward slash Lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Services. That's posh.com forward slash Lawyerist. And by Clio. What do solo and small firm lawyers with great client relationships have in common? They use cloud-based legal practice management software to run their law firms. This is just one finding from Clio's latest legal trends report. There's no getting around it. The fact is, when it comes to client expectations, standards are higher than ever before for lawyers. Proof is in the numbers. 88% of lawyers using cloud-based software report good relationships with clients. For firms not in the cloud, barely half can say that. That gap is significant. For more information on how cloud software creates better client relationships, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com trends. That's Clio, spelled C-L-I-O, dot com slash trends. And by LawPay. Did you know 80% of lawyers struggle to make their firms profitable? If you want to build a thriving practice, you need the right set of tools. LawPay, the number one legal payments processor, in my case, the leader in legal practice management software have joined forces to offer law firms a complete software solution. Access everything your firm needs to succeed all in one place. Track time, send invoices, get paid, handle accounting and three-way trust reconciliation, manage client intake, and more without switching between programs. Plus, access dozens of integrations that seamlessly sync with your current software. Over 65,000 lawyers trust LawPay and MyCase to streamline their firm's operations. In fact, users get paid 39% faster and gain three billable hours per day on average. So why wait? Learn more and schedule a demo now at lawpay.com forward slash lawyerist. That's lawpay.com forward slash lawyerist. So we're back with Rebecca Sandifer, and we're talking about access to justice. And before the break, I had kind of indicated that I'd like to talk about connecting people with their own law. And I think that's a fascinating idea behind access to justice, because a lot of times we as lawyers, and I know I, I get in this habit a lot of times of kind of protecting people from themselves. And that seems to be a lot of what our regulations are, but connecting people with their own law, because this law is supposed to be serving them, right? So when I started studying access to justice, it was because I noticed something that seemed curious to me. Mm -hmm. I, as a person who lives in this country, pay taxes and I elect legislators and they write laws and my taxes build courthouses and pay for judges' salaries and court clerk salaries and all those things. So mm -hmm. and it's a democracy. Or supposed to be. And so that means that those are those are my laws and that's my legal system. Not me exclusively, but me as part of this big diverse right. policy that we're in. Now, in my community, there's also a system of public schools. And if I live within the catchment area of the public school, or if I live within whatever the you know, how you allocate people in your community, I can take my child down and enroll them in the public school. Mm -hmm. My public education system, but 
if I want to use my legal system, I have to go to a private third party and pay them money. Now, what if in order to enroll my kid in kindergarten, I had to go to like, I don't know, educational consultants who've had seven years of training and have to buy lots of insurance and take lots of exams Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and pay them $250 an hour to enroll my kid in school. Like, it's kind of crazy to have that gatekeeping on what is a public institution that is accountable to those people. And so part of what these explorations and changing the rules about who can give access are about are about thinking about ways to connect people to their own law because it really mm-hmm. is their law, our law. And it's even your law as a lawyer. It's just right. that it's not any more your law than anyone else's. Now, theoretically, people could go and do their own research. And I, I say theoretically rather loosely because we also have restrictions or at least difficulties in finding what the law is. And it is confusing to do legal research if you're not trained to do legal research. But theoretically, people can connect with the law if they want to. But I think more to your point, practically, they really can't. And so you had said something about, you know, some other countries having, you know, free legal services in the way that we would have education, you know, public education. Is that something that would help us with access to justice? You know, having an office like a a local, almost like the social security office that somebody could go to, to say, Hey, I'm having an issue. I don't know if it's legal or not. Can you help me with it? I think if we had places where people could go, I'm having an issue. I don't know what this letter means. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to respond to this problem. I don't know who to call for this. I think that would be incredibly powerful, but it can only be powerful if people can give you information that's useful to you. Right. And here's the code. Or go look it up, or here's a pleading form, write a pleading. That's not particularly helpful. And so if you're thinking about about giving people access to law, part of it is about empowering frontline justice workers who are going to be, if you think about what we really need, much more diverse than just attorneys. Mm -hmm. They're going to be people who are already working in the places where people go when they run into trouble. So They're going to be when you go to the doctor's office or when you're in the principal's office trying to figure out what to do with your kid or in a community center or attached to your your religious organization. They're going to be in places where you already go and they're going to have enough knowledge, but also authorized capacity to give you information that's really useful. And I'll give you an example. Most every state has a statewide legal aid website. Mm-hmm. So you can go there for free and you can get information about what the law says and you might be able to get a referral to a lawyer. You can get forms if your state has authorized forms that differs a lot across different states, like forms for divorce or forms for whatever, answer to answer a, a, some kind of claim. Mm-hmm. And l- many of them have live chats. And so a, a couple of states were kind enough to give me for some period of time the live chats that just came in and out of, of their statewide legal aid websites. Okay. I looked at what people were asking for. Uh, were they asking for an attorney? Were they asking for information? Or were they asking for legal advice? And the most common thing that people are asking for is legal advice. They're mm-hmm. asking a question like, what is this that's happening? What does this mean? What kind of situation am I in? And what are my options for trying to respond to it? And what can I expect if I take one or the other of those options? Mm-hmm. So empowering the people at the front lines to be able to give that kind of very basic information. Well, yeah, it is information about how the law works, 
but we call it advice and we restrict it to attorneys. Like that would be a game changer. I hadn't gone down that path in my mind of where you're going. The difference in my mind of what our examples is that I, my thought is, or let's make an office like a, a you know, legal services corporation and, and it's there downtown, yada, yada. But, you know, you kind of go back to this idea of giving people education at the moment they need that education, you know, so having, you know, people embedded, but I, I don't know, is it practical to be able to regulate that? And I don't mean regulate in the sense of, I guess regulate is probably the, uh, not a good word. Is it practical to be able to organize that to feel like the appropriate people are in the appropriate place? Or is it more practical to say, we're going to change the definition of what is legal advice? Oh, you mean in terms of achieving the goal of making it more acceptable? Of having somebody at the principal's office that can give somebody good, thoughtful advice and knowing that they can. Having somebody at the dentist's office that can give somebody good practical advice and knowing that they can. Or is it better to say, listen, you know, buyer beware, but people can give a little bit more advice now. So in the United Kingdom, it's unregulated. The mm -hmm. delivery of legal advice, you can do it for free as a, as a charitable act. You can do it for pay as a business. Mm -hmm. You could do that in the U.S. context. I tend to like evidence. And so, <laughs> you know, what are the contexts and what are the kinds of issues in which we can do this safely? Right. <laughs> so Utah's model, which says, okay, you're a domestic violence advocacy organization. What we're going to do is authorize the people who work with you to give legal advice to people facing these domestic violence situations, as well as just information about the process and accompaniment through it. And then we're going to watch what happens and make sure that that goes okay. <laughs> I like that better. But if you think about it, it's more expensive and takes more people and more time than just changing the rules and saying, what the heck, give it a try. Right. Then there are back-end ways to respond to injury, just like consumer protection law, you know, that, that would apply to all kinds of things. Right. I think that's something that we gloss over a lot of times is just because somebody is not a licensed attorney doesn't mean they can't get sued for causing harm right. based on, on their advice or lack of, of advice or something like that. I think that's absolutely something that we, that we just bounce right over, but I've gone to school for you know three years to, to learn about all this stuff. Actually seven. Yes. <laughs> so, so I've gone to school for seven years to learn about all this stuff. Why, why should somebody, you know, not pay me for that knowledge? You know, I, I can't just, I can't just pull somebody's tooth. Can I? You probably can't pull their tooth, but you can whiten their teeth. You mm. can clean their teeth. I mean, it goes back to sort of how you want to, how you want to authorize and monitor or organize the activity. Uh -huh. So one is to do what you would do with a dental therapist and be like, okay, you are licensed to do this limited set of dental care. Or you could say you work for Teeth R Us and, and we're going to rely on Teeth R Us to train you to do this limited set of dental care. Then Teeth R Us is accountable to telling the regulator, you know, how many people's teeth you cleaned, if there were any complaints if any of them got inadvertently pulled out or, you know, if there was some kind of consumer harm that occurred during that. And then the regular can say, okay, TRS, you're doing great. We, we feel okay about how you, how you train and monitor the people who provide the services that you offer. Or you might say, wow, you know, you do okay in this area, but when you're dealing with people with dentures, you're terrible. 
So, you know, dentures are now out of your practice, perhaps. And that's a perfectly possible way to do this. That also, if you do it that way, people who are in a place living the lives that they live are much more likely to identify what their neighbors need, give it to them in a culturally appropriate way, Mm -hmm. in a way that's in the language that they actually speak. So it's also a way of creating possibilities for people to identify local problems and local solutions and act on them in ways that will make sense in that context, Mm -hmm. rather than trying to say there's this one size fits all and it's going to solve all our problems, which is what we've tried to do with attorney licensing. And clearly it doesn't work. Right, right. Yes, because there is a, whether you like it, don't like it, or I mean, I don't think there's a lot of people that like there's a massive access to justice gap, but there is there are a lot of people who are not getting their justiciable problems served appropriately, you know, no, no matter how you say it. So before we go, I'd like to know then, what is a way that we could kind of move forward with evidence-based kind of regulations? What would be your thought on how do we gather or how do we set ourselves up in a way where we can gather evidence and actually serve these, these ideas of protecting the public and getting people to do things appropriately in a positive way. Yeah. And there are different models that are being explored right now in the, in the U.S. So Utah, the Office of Legal Services Innovation, is an evidence-based regulator that requests information from about every service that's received in that regulatory space. And then it has data analysts that analyze that data and look for evidence of harm. So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be the model that's developing in Alaska. So the Supreme Court has has authorized the legal aid agency to train people and deploy them throughout the state. But then there are independent researchers who have started a project looking at how that plays out, right? So you're you're kind of outsourcing (laughs) the evidence part outside of the legal services regulatory structure Mm -hmm. to another group of people. And the good thing about that is that those people are independent in a way that maybe regulators aren't from their own regulation. Okay. But it also means, you know, the challenges of funding that kind of activity, of of recruiting the people to do that kind of work. Nothing is perfect. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's, I think that's a good thing to, to really keep in mind with this whole thing though, is that nothing is perfect. The system that we have right now is not perfect. The system that we're going to create is not perfect. The systems that we have in between now and and what we create in the future will not be perfect. And I think we we can't lose sight of that. One last question then is, do we have the time to make evidence-based, I think of this as smaller thoughtful steps, or do we need to make big changes? And where I'm coming from is what you had gleaned from what I said earlier is, is technology going too fast for us to be able to respond to these things? You know, when we look at artificial intelligence and the, you know, simply globalization of these issues as well, do we need to make big steps? Well, I think we definitely, as um, Jim Sandman, who is the past president of Legal Services Corporation, says, we need solutions that are commensurate with the magnitude of the problem. So yeah, we have to take really big steps, but you can take really big steps and then watch them and think of them as experiments, right? We've allowed this to happen. Let's see how it goes. 
Mm-hmm. And if you're monitoring things in more or less real time, you can intervene really quickly if you see problems and yeah. you identify fairly quickly models that will be likely to be successful because we have to scale this stuff up. I mean, mm-hmm. there are one point, is it 1.6 million lawyers in the U.S. now? And as far, I think it's 1.6. I didn't check today, though. But, you know, <laughs> even though the legal profession has quadrupled in size since 1970, Everything we know about the justice gap for low-income people, but also for middle-income people, is that it's only gotten worse. Mm-hmm. So lawyers don't scale. So then we need to think about creating, enabling environments for things that could scale. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't have much much better to say than that. And I think that's probably a good thing to end on, is creating environments for things that can scale, because we're we're not taking care of this and won't be able to take care of this by throwing lawyers or money at it, simply. So, Dr. Sandifer, I, I really appreciate you being with me today. I certainly learned a lot, and thank you for thinking about my questions and, and taking them. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful to be with you. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at Lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to Lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10-minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.